Hi, this is uh, Robert M. Price. I want to start out this uh, episode, if that's what you call it, this segment, uh, whatever, of the Bible Geek uh, on a more serious note than I sometimes do, because uh, if you didn't know it already, I should uh, tell you about the sad news of the death of uh, Hermann Dettering, a German New Testament scholar who uh, ran a uh, a website called Radical Critique or Radical Criticism. Uh, he's had uh, material uh, in the Journal of Higher Criticism, and uh, he's, uh, in fact, the whole issue, the fab- the falsified Paul, which then came out in another edition later, is the fabricated Paul. Uh, he was the uh, great uh, 20th century proponent of the Dutch radical criticism, and that denied that uh, Paul, whoever he was, wrote uh, any of the epistles with his name on him. He was a mythicist. He was, in my judgment, and I know this this is a big claim, but it's not uh, exaggerated, uh, he was the uh, the greatest New Testament scholar of our time, and there are plenty of New Testament scholars, but I, I don't think anybody matched this guy's keen insight uh, and uh, his knowledge of these of this uh, obscure because neglected field of New Testament uh, scholarship. And uh, he, uh, I hope to be able to publish two or three of uh, the last essays he wrote. And uh, there, uh, I had a little bit of a hand in uh, polishing up the English translation of one of them, so I'm familiar with it, and I know it's dynamite stuff. And uh, he uh, he was a wonderful fellow. He wasn't a professor anywhere. He was a pastor. Uh, he studied with the, the great Walter Schmittals and uh, just can't say enough good stuff about this man. It's uh, so uh, serious a blow to uh, New Testament scholarship. Um, and uh, that leaves, uh, let's see, who's left of today's uh, Dutch radicals. Uh, there's me. Uh, well, there was Daryl Dowdy, my mentor at Drew University, though I kind of turned him on to uh, that stuff. Uh, uh, he's gone, and uh, so I'm not sure. I think I may be the only uh, writing New Testament uh, person to uh, embrace this, uh, but what the heck. Um, I just care about my own studies, anybody else is free to think whatever they they uh, prefer, but I just wanted to pass that bad news on to you. Well, let's get uh, into some uh, some of the questions folks have kindly sent in to the old Bible geek, and the first one is from Keith Thompson. Now, reading this, I am no longer sure he intended it for the podcast. He may have just been writing to me, but this would have been months ago, and I guess he said it was for the Bible geek, because I did... uh put it in the uh, rain barrel file, but anyway, here it is. He says, I run an apologetics organization, and I'm researching the mythicist position. I have purchased all your books, but I'm confused by one of your arguments and hope you can help me resolve the matter if you have the time. Uh, Concerning Papias's comments on Mark using Peter as a source, you suggest Papias may not have been referring to canonical Mark. You know, um, 
Papias uh, says that Mark was the written deposit of the preaching of, uh, of Peter, right? Uh, not that, but to the uh, quote, this is me now, the Ebionite work, the preachings of Peter, unquote, this I said in uh, The Incredible Shrinking Son of Man in 2003. However, I am not sure what work you're referring to. I was wondering if you would be able to provide me with more information. Are you referring to the Kerygmata Petru, which was written about A.D. 200, uh, as for Georg Strecker in Das Juden Christentum in den uh, Pseudo-Clementinen? Uh, 1981, etc. I think the work also goes by other names. Uh, wait a minute. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, I think there's maybe uh, something missing here. But at any rate, uh, yeah, I, I was. But um, basically, let me give credit to the great David Friedrich Strauss, who, as far as I know, was the first to argue that... Uh, Papias may not be referring to, to our Gospel of Mark there because what he says about it doesn't seem to uh, jibe with what uh, our Mark has. It's, uh, there's something about the defectiveness of its order uh, that doesn't seem really to be true about it. Uh, it's uh, supposed to be a collection of reminiscences. That's really a different sort of a genre than the way our Mark reads. If you want to see what such a thing would be like, take a look at the preaching of John section of the Acts of John. I have just the preaching of John um, section in my pre-Nicene New Testament. There, though it's fictive, uh, it, it is an attempt to sort of imagine what John would have said to his disciples. Yeah, I remember the time Jesus did this and so on. None of that in, uh, in Mark. And uh, that's uh, a similar, well, a similar analysis of Mark uh, was by uh, Dennis Nynum, D.E. Nynum, in Theological Studies uh, many years ago, or reprinted in a, a collection of his essays, where he says that you, you just don't have the... Uh, the, the marks of eyewitness testimony there. I know others have written saying, oh, yes, you do, but I, I find Nynum uh, pretty convincing on that. It'd be worth looking at. Uh, and uh, and the, uh, there's a bit of that in the Kerygmata Petru, or the preachings of Peter. Uh, and uh, so, I'm, so uh, that could possibly be what he's referring to. The dating is a little bit uh, off there, if the uh, Kerygmata Petru was as uh, late as Strecker and others make it, but this is in a twilight zone because this is one, the Kerygmata Petru would be part of this so-called, I know uh, Hans-Joachim Sheps calls it the, uh, uh, the Ebionite Acts of the Apostles, whatever you call it, it is apparent that it's an earlier source used in the Pseudo-Clementine and that goes back to the second century. Well, Papias is supposed to be writing in the second century before Irenaeus, because Irenaeus, around 180 or so, quotes him. Uh, and uh, so it's possible that the Kerygmata Petru is uh, 
a few decades older. I, there's no way to, to be sure of that. So I still think it's quite possible he's referring to that. But the real point is that there's a truckload of apocryphal or pseudepigraphical stuff attributed to Peter that uh, nobody thinks he wrote. Uh, and uh, the apocalypse of Peter and the gospel of Peter, the, the journeyings of Peter and so on. And so uh, even if we don't happen to have it, uh, it's uh, you just can't assume we have everything that was attributed uh, to Peter. There, there are two other epistles of Peter and so on. Um, so it might not be uh, the Kerygmata Petru, but that is the one I'm referring to, and it's, it's a little bit up in the air. Also, I know you're going to think I'm a hypercritical nut for this, but it, it occurs to me that uh, the uh, fragments of Papias that uh, various church fathers uh, quote here and there is uh, sort of like the Hadith of Muhammad, that it's not that certain in my mind that the stuff actually goes back to him, that it was rather uh, sort of like uh, we, well, it's kind of like what Irenaeus says about all manner of topics where he says that the the elders, uh, who the direct heirs of the apostles back over in the East, back up everything he says. Uh, and and uh, with a bunch of these things, you can't really imagine they had an opinion on it. Like whether the, the reading in the book of Revelation is for the number of the beast is 666 or 616. Oh, the, the elders go along with so-and-so. What? Yeah, that just seems like it's bogus. And uh, I suspect that's that's the case with uh, with with Papias. But who knows, right? Uh, okay, let's read the rest of this where I, where uh, Keith is clearing up a mistake I made. Uh, he says, um, I think the work also goes by other names. For instance, the history of the nativity of Jesus or something. Uh, now he it sounds like uh, Keith is referring to to um, the Kerygmata Petru, but but he's certainly referring to the next thing he mentions, unless I'm just misreading this, which is always possible. Uh, in the Incredible Shrinking Son of Man, you mentioned the infancy gospel of Matthew as being the source Papias possibly had in mind when talking about a Hebrew work uh, Matthew wrote. I'm having trouble finding a plausible work of this nature. Is the infancy gospel of Matthew the same as the gospel of pseudo-Matthew, also known as history of the nativity of Mary and the infancy of the Savior. Uh, it sometimes goes by the name infancy gospel of Matthew, but the text is from this text is from the seventh century. Uh, he quotes Barden and some others, um, which makes me think it is not the one you're talking about. Uh, well, it was, and that is a, a mistake on my part. Uh, I must have been confusing it with one of the other infancy gospels that are supposedly, uh, I believe, the. Uh, the Protevangelion, which I call the Infancy Gospel of James, uh, is uh, is some supposed to be sometime in the second century. But uh, yeah, the um, again the point Strauss was making is that there are uh, apparently other supposedly Matthean uh, writings uh, in uh, in the uh, time of Irenaeus and uh, and Papias and so forth. 
and uh, I, I am referring to the wrong thing there, but I call that one the infancy gospel of Matthew, especially since I tend to think that uh, our canonical gospel of Matthew isn't by Matthew anyway. It's kind of an artful pseudonym based on the Greek word mathetes, disciple, because this is the great catechism for Gentile converts to Christianity and so on and so on. Uh, but um, the uh, th- there were, in fact, the... the um, the infancy gospel of of Matthew, or if you prefer, the infancy gospel, uh, the uh, what the heck is it? The Gospel of Pseudo Matthew is prefaced by apparently bogus letters from uh, from Jerome, uh, in which he says this is the Hebrew version of Matthew that he referred to elsewhere. And, and of course, Jerome actually does refer to a uh, uh, Hebrew original of Matthew, which there may well have been, though there are problems with that I won't bore you with. Uh, and uh, and the the Hebrew gospel tradition is, is um, confusing, sort of an embarrassment of riches, because we have at least three so-called Jewish gospels, uh, the gospel according to the Ebionites, the gospel according to the Nazarenes, and the gospel according to the Hebrews. And uh, it is entirely possible, well, it's generally thought that these are kind of variant versions of the uh, of the uh, canonical Greek go- gospel of Matthew, and uh, which means any of those could have been attributed to Matthew at some point. And so, once again, Strauss's claim is quite reasonable that uh, Papias may have been referring to one of those. So that's my point. I'm sorry for the the, the dating goof. I don't know how I did that, and I appreciate your pointing it out, Keith. So I hope that... Uh, somewhat dispels the confusion uh, you can blame on me. So thanks a bunch, Keith. You're a careful reader. Okay, uh, Spinozist here. Um, Oh, Spinozist theist. Don't want to leave out the part of the pen name. Uh, It's a Scottish accent, if you feel like it. Okay, with a question for our neighborhood-friendly titan of higher criticism. I read your article on the Johannine epistles and found the argument about their chronology and Zitzimleben compelling. But what about First John? I have two questions. First, is it a coherent work or a patchwork quilt of successive redaction? The reason I ask is that the text reads more like a back-and-forth quarrel than a theological or evangelistic treatise. Uh, in particular, consider the issue of sin. Do Christians sin or not? Let's take a look at some passages. At the very beginning, 1, 5 and following, our author declares his position. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, um, we lie and do not live according to the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, pilgrim, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Setting aside for a moment the question of Gnosticism, the point seems clear. Uh, God is light, so if we're in God, we will not sin, no darkness. And Jesus' blood removes all sin from us. So far, so good. But then the very next, uh, then the very next verses. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Am I reading too much into this to see no fewer than four back and forth layers of editing here? 1 verses 5 through 7. God is light. Jesus cleanses us from sin, etc. Um, so no sin for Christians. 2 verse 8. But if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And so sin for Christians. 3 verse 9. But if we confess their sins, we have been cleansed, so no sin for Christians. 4. Verse 10. But if we say we're without sin, we're liars. So sin for Christians. Here it looks like the pro-sin redactor gets the last word, but this continues throughout the book. Consider 2, 3 through 4. And by this we may be sure that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, uh, but disobeys his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Uh, consider 2.10. He who loves his brother abides in the light and in him there's no cause for stumbling. Consider 3.5 through 6. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has either seen him or known him. Consider 3, 8 through 9. He who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. No one born of God commits sin, for God's nature abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. Consider 5.16-17, through 17, which sounds like we're hearing from the pro-sin side of things again. If anyone sees his brother committing what is not a mortal sin, he will ask and God will give him life for those whose sin is not mortal. This is followed with verse 18, which seems to obviate the preceding verses. We know that anyone born of God does not sin, but he who was born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. What's going on here? Is this a drama being played out by successive editors, or is this more uh, or less self-consistent in some way? Maybe the mortal versus venial sin distinction is the key? Um, let's see. I, well, then, uh, my second question, just who Gnostic is first, John, anyway? Well, uh, what you've uh, said is almost exactly what I say uh, about First uh, John in the, the pre-Nicene New Testament and in um, a Holy Fable, Volume 3, that it seems to me that what we have is a, a back-and-forth debate between redactors that uh, originally, in all probability, the... the um, approach was that Christians do sin, but keep short accounts with God, confess your sins, and you don't have to worry, God will forgive your sins. 
Now that may seem obvious to say, but of course there were early Christians who were who were uh, hag ridden with the 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 fear. Oh my gosh, I committed some sin. Am I is, am I gonna be pushing up daisies? Uh, am I uh, doomed, damned? And and suppose it's a, a mortal sin, uh, boy. And he said, no, look, look. Short of a mortal sin, you got nothing to worry about. God is a forgiving God. The atonement of Christ avails. For you, don't worry. Um, uh, but uh, the uh, the other business, Christians can't, and therefore do not sin. This is a kind of fanatical perfectionism that leads almost inevitably to libertinism, because you you, you can't uh, be totally without. Uh, doing things you yourself would consider sin. And if you believe that, well, look, I'm uh, I'm born of God. I remember my uh, conversion very clearly. I've had spiritual experiences. I can't think I'm a counterfeit or a faker. So I guess what I did must not be a sin. And then maybe nothing is this is a sin, which is where we get libertine Gnosticism. Uh, I'm not going to be... Uh, held accountable to the laws of this world, which uh, the, were promulgated by the demiurge to his stooge Moses. No, no, no. I, I'm in touch with the, the real Godhead, the Pleroma, and uh, I'm beyond ordinary standards of good and evil. Uh, so I, and that, that I think is the, uh, the position of whoever corrected uh, in the um, the uh, the earlier version that says, "Hey, don't worry, you can confess and be forgiven." How did this happen? Well, uh, that's not very difficult to uh, to explain. I mean, we don't know. We weren't there, right? Uh, my time machine is is at the uh, garage being fixed, so I can't go uh, back to the principles and ask him. But it seems clear that. This goes back to something mentioned in the same letter, this split within the Johannine community, uh, those who are, are virtually fulfillments of the prediction of the Antichrist. Uh, they went out from among us, but that only shows they never belonged with us to begin with. Uh, these people that deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, etc. Yeah, we're dealing with docetic Gnostics uh, who were perfectionists slash libertines. Uh, and, uh, and so what this means is, that the readers of the original, slightly shorter version of First John, included uh, the Gnostics who who were in process of schism, and so they, I mean, they liked many Johannine traditions, and there are certainly docetic leaning passages in the Gospel of John. And uh, however, they couldn't buy this. They thought the stuff about Christian sinning was part of a retrograde uh, uh, version of the truth. And so it was, however, venerated amongst the Johannine communities as, uh, you know, writing from the great elder himself. So in the manner of ancient scribes, they couldn't just cut the stuff out they didn't like. They had to Correct it, as uh, Mr. Grady says in The Shining. Uh, they need correction, perhaps something more. And uh, uh, and so they decided to use the elder, so-called John, uh, as uh, as their ventriloquist dummy to get that 
their their doctrine in, speaking their truth, as we now say in our idiotic culture. Uh, and uh, the same is true of the Gospel of John. I also argue uh, in some detail that uh, that uh, that document was uh, used and treasured by various Johannine sects as the movement fragmented, including Gnostics. And uh, you had pro and anti-Gnostic docetic uh, sayings uh, in in the Gospel of John, and that uh, that's why there seem to be these contradictions. Probably the same is true of First Corinthians. Uh, so people had different versions of, the, or it, now it could be that the uh, the perfectionist passages in First John simply replaced what was originally there. Uh, and some uh, so that there were two different versions floating around, and that subsequent scribes had copies of both and decided to harmonize them. That is what I think happened with the Gospel of John. So that's what I make of that. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Spinoza's theist. I did a sermon on uh, Spinoza theism uh, called Spin Doctor. It's one of my favorites. Okay, uh, this I think these are. Uh, from our buddy, let me go back to go down to the uh, yeah Ben Abelo, uh, a perceptive Bible geek listener. You can tell he's perceptive because he is a Bible geek listener. Okay, um, uh, let's see. I have questions on six topics, all geek related. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, question number one, my first pertains to Paul's famous teaching in Romans 5, 18 through 19. Uh, then as one man's Adam's trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one man's Jesus act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. In previous episodes of The Bible Geek, you refer to the existence of perhaps a dozen different explanations for how Jesus' death and resurrection affect salvation. How they bring it about, right? Effect with an E, not affect with an A. I will break my question into three parts, labeled A, B, and C. A, first two... but to shore up my background, could you give a quick sampling of a few of these roughly dozen salvational explanations found in the New Testament? Yeah, there's the ransom theory uh, that uh, that um, the whole human race is uh, enslaved to slash made hostages to uh, the devil, like Malachi Martin's uh, book, Hostage to the Devil. Yeah, that's a very old idea. Uh, We, uh, by sinning, uh, gave ourselves away. I mean, we asked for it. Uh, And now the whole darn human race is enslaved, as Hebrews says, the the letter of the Hebrews, that... um, the the devil has kept the human race enslaved by the fear of death all their lives uh, and uh, so what uh, what um, god did to set the hostages free was to send his son or become incarnate whatever you want to say uh, to give his life in return for theirs it's as if satan had a pretty good baseball card collection but boy he sure wanted that rare Roger Maris card. I have one. I hope 
he doesn't get a hold of that one. Uh, and uh, and so God says to him, hey, uh, I uh, have a Roger Maris card I'd be willing to uh, to give up, but I'm afraid it's going to cost you. Uh, I, I'm going to need your whole collection of the souls of the human race. But this is a Roger Maris card. And the devil's... Uh, okay, what the heck? You know, it's kind of like the parable of the, the guy that finds the treasure in the field, sells everything he's got to buy that, or better yet, the pearl merchant. Uh, he finds this incredible pearl, and he says, how am I ever going to afford that? Well, maybe I'll just sell off all the pearls I have in my stock and then uh, use that to buy the pearl. I'll just have one pearl, but it'll be worth it. Same thing here. So he says, "Say, uh, Satan, uh, you've got the souls of the whole human race, uh, but if you you'll let him go, I'll give you the soul of <coughs> my son. Oh, what's that? Gee, I don't think I can resist that uh, deal. Okay, you, you got yourself a deal. So the human race is freed, and uh, but the poor uh, jerk doesn't realize that he can't keep the soul of uh, the Son of God only for a couple of days, and boom, he gets beamed up, and the poor Satan is left holding the bag. So that's the ransom theory. And, of course, people appeal to uh, the saying, at the Last Supper, uh, uh, well, a couple of different places. Luke has it at the Last Supper. Mark has it earlier that the Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. Yeah, okay. So there, that's one version. There's the uh, so-called Christus Victor uh, which uh, model, which is, I think Gustave Aulain was a famous 20th century proponent of that one, but it's a very old one. Really, uh, the idea was uh, that there was no hostage negotiation. Uh, Jesus just kicked the butt of the devil and liberated his hostages. This goes way back there. The harrowing of hell idea is based on this, uh, that uh, Jesus burst into hell or Sheol or wherever and uh, opened the gates and let everybody go, and poor Satan uh, couldn't do anything to stop him. Uh, but it, it's older than that, even, because it, it's a form of the idea of uh, Yahweh defeating Leviathan in battle. And uh, Christ is, is sort of pictured that way, defeating the devil and freeing the slaves. Then there is the uh, substitutionary atonement view. Uh, that uh, I guess you could call the penal substitution view, because the idea is that the human race in sinning is guilty of crimes that can be paid for by their damnation. Uh, or, well, the, or uh, if you could find a substitute, now how are you going to do that? Well, um, uh, Christ, uh, God incarnates as Christ, and uh, he, in effect, by offering an immortal life, uh, to uh, to be sacrificed on the cross, that's enough to do it. He's paid the debt for those who are now his fellow human beings, though he was only able to do it because he was more than a human being. He was a divine being. And so the death of such a one, even temporarily, was enough to pay the debt. So then there is the uh, expiation view that... Um, uh, that uh, it's based on animal sacrifice in the Old Testament, that the blood of Christ, the sacrificial lamb, uh, washes away sin. 
in very much the same way that would slit the throat of a sacrificial animal and and the offerer would put his hand on the the head of the the beast and the uh the um, gushing blood would uh, somehow avail for him and and wash them clean and then there's the uh the uh the, what the heck's it called the uh Abelard's theory, the moral influence theory, that, uh, you know, in uh, 1 John, it says, this is how we know he loves us, that he gave his only son uh, to save us from our sins. Uh, and uh, so the the idea here, though it's not necessarily contained in that statement, but it suggested to Abelard that it was the demonstration at the cross of the love of God for sinful humanity that woos us and wins us over to God's side and we leave our sinful selves behind. I think this is a pretty lame one, actually, because uh, there's really nothing about a guy letting himself get killed that would seem to have any saving value. And I like to um, use this little hypothetical and anecdote for that suppose um you and i were about to cross the street and here comes a bus barreling down on us uh, and uh, it's going to hit you and uh, i i'm uh, and i manage to knock into you and knock you out of the way but in doing so i place myself in the path of the bus and i get flattened you would uh look at my gory remains and say wow i had no idea he loved me so much to give his life for me because you see it was the thing that killed me that was the only thing that would save your life Right, So in a concrete way, yes, my death showed my love. But suppose it went down this way. You and I uh, are waiting for a bus. One comes down the road, and I say to you, watch this. And then I leap into the path of the bus to get killed. What the heck was I doing? I mean, that's just suicide, pointless. Uh, the mere fact that I died, uh, it doesn't have any saving value for you. And so you'd have to ask, well, mustn't the moral influence theory presuppose at least one of the other theories, some way in which my death would save you? Because uh, <laughs> just the, uh, the fact of my death with no further explanation doesn't seem to help. Okay, so there's some. Um, B, next, how does Paul's teaching in Romans 5, 18 through 19, fit with the other explanations for salvation? For example, does Paul's teaching in Romans compete with these other explanations, or do those other explanations, or at least some of them, function to mediate or explain how Paul's teaching in Romans 5, 18 through 19 actually works? Or, um... Is it a mixed bag with some competing and some functioning as mediating mechanisms? Well, uh, theologians always say that really it's like the blind men and the elephant, that they're all aspects of the truth. We don't quite see how they tie together, but that's no big surprise. We can't tell uh, how the same entity can behave like both a um, a particle and a wave. Uh, seems like they do, though. Uh, and uh, that's a kind of a 
of a dodge, but uh, you know it's a forgivable one. That's true if there's some esoteric metaphysical thing going on here. It's no surprise we couldn't explain the whole thing. Um, but uh, usually they try to do that. Uh, I don't think it fits, though. Um, well, some it does, some it doesn't. Uh, it's not that tough to say, well, how did his obedience save? It, it, well, it's you could say, well, it's because he became the substitute and, and so on. But uh, it seems to me what we have here is a kind of justification by grace, regardless of faith. It says that the one guy's bad decision condemned everybody, made them into sinners, doomed to die. In the same way, amazingly, one man, a kind of counterpart to the first one, in his similar circumstances chose obedience, and that consigned the human race to uh, life. It's as if they had no choice in the matter either way. And then you're really dealing with universalism, right? And uh, that isn't uh, explicated anymore in this passage, but that's what it would seem to me to imply. Uh, it's not your obedience, whether doing righteous acts or your obedience to the gospel, as Paul says elsewhere. Uh, it's Christ's obedience, and you now are automatically saved. For we are, as he says in Second Corinthians, we are convinced that if one died for all, then all died, that they should henceforth live, and so on and so on. Uh, that kind of implies universalism, uh, and that doesn't fit with some of the rest of it. Uh, let's see. Uh, and plus the fact that the expiation theory just seems like magic. It's, it's not a, even a category that makes sense to us. Good luck trying to explain it. Um, uh, see, finally, I'm under the impression that Paul's teaching in Romans has historically been the most decisive and influential of all Christian salvation teachings. Is my understanding on that point correct? And if so, does the high status of this teaching... Uh, oh, yeah, arise logically from the New Testament itself? Or... Is it based purely on the emphasis placed on it by later Christians? I, although I might normally be quick to give heavy weight to the role of later Christians, it does seem to me that Jesus' obedience is the key at many points in the New Testament. For example, in the Gospel Passion account, uh, where uh, his obedience seems to be the central fact that makes him who he is. And, of course, there is that line from Philippians 2.8 about obedience unto death. Even in Hebrews, which contains what I assume is one of the competing explanations about salvation, one finds an emphasis on Jesus' obedience. Uh, he learned obedience through what he suffered, Hebrews 5.8. This emphasis on Jesus' obedience at many points in the New Testament seems to partially justify the weight that has historically been given to Paul's teachings in Romans 5, 18 through 19. I'd love to hear your thoughts about, uh, uh, to repeat question C, whether the salvational teaching of Romans 5, 18 through 19 is in fact the dominant one, and if so, why it became dominant. Well, I'm not sure if it's that aspect of... Uh, of uh, the Romans teaching that has become so dominant. 
I think the uh, the importance of Romans is in Protestant teaching. It's earlier in the letter, like in chapter three, that uh, we uh, have well, chapter four, two, I guess, with Abraham, that faith is crucial because of the grace of God shown in the in the cross uh, made effectual in the cross that god that we cannot save ourselves uh, only the grace of god can do it uh, he gives the uh, righteousness he demands and uh, so our works don't do it the work of jesus does and uh, he was made sin for us though that's uh, I think that's in Second Corinthians, actually, but that uh, by God's offered grace and our faith acceptance of it, we are made right with God or justified by God. And I think that aspect of Romans, and it's not the only one even there, has become so important in Protestantism because, of course, Martin Luther was searching for a salve for his soul. He thought, uh, God is perfect. He demands perfection. I ain't got any. Uh, and um, so I'm doomed. I want to be saved, but Come on, I'm not kidding myself. And then he he uh, reads in Romans where it says the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven, etc., etc. He says, "What's this? God gives righteousness." Well, then I guess I'm off the hook. I mean, I, I want to be righteous still, maybe more than ever, and I'm able to do it now because of the grace of God. Uh, and uh, so I, uh, you know, God forbid I sin, though I'm sure I will. But even there, uh, God's grace avails for me. And I, uh, and I don't think uh, Catholicism ever went for that in quite the same way. Uh, they zero in on other Pauline statements and say, we all have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and answer for what we did, etc., etc. And uh, Catholics say, what does this mean? Nothing? Uh, is he kidding here? And I think that uh, the last couple of decades, well, last three decades maybe, Pauline scholars have said, wait a second. A great example of this would be Christer Stendhal's essay, Paul and the Introspective Conscience of the West. And there have been other whole books devoted to that since. And they're really going back to F.C. Bauer, who said that when Paul says it's not works of the law that save, it's faith, he's not talking about Martin Luther's dilemma. Uh, Luther was oblivious of what it was originally about, and, and understandably so. I mean, Luther was a genius, uh, and uh, uh, and but but he was so dominated by his existential concern that he didn't see this. Paul is talking about whether Gentile converts have to keep the Torah. Do they have to be circumcised and keep kosher laws and all of that stuff if they want to become Christians? And he says, no, it's not works of the Torah, works commanded by the Torah that save, even if you're a Jewish Christian. You're welcome to keep the Torah. Uh, fine, uh, that's your tradition, but you can't impose that on the Gentiles. You're, you're placing a secondary stumbling block. I mean, it's rough enough to admit you're a sinner and you need to repent. Why make it even, why raise the bar even higher by saying, oh yeah, you're also going to have to adopt cultural norms that are alien to you. 
uh, have fun. People would look at that and remain like the so-called God-fearers, Gentiles who liked Judaism but weren't going to do all those laws. Uh, they attended synagogue, heard the scriptures read, believed in the Hebrew God, but they weren't going to get circumcised. Ouch. Uh, and uh, so uh, that's what the alternative would be. And Paul is concerned to say, no, 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 you're on an equal footing before God, Jew or Gentile. And if you're a Gentile, you don't have to become a Jew to become a Christian. And that's the issue. Faith in Christ is the thing that is saving, not keeping the Torah, though there may be good reasons to do that too if you're a Jew. But that, that is not the key to salvation. And he's, in Galatians he says, if it is, then Christ died in vain. I mean, nothing's changed from the old covenant to the new covenant. Something must have changed, and it must be the atoning death of Christ, so Gentiles don't have to keep the Torah. That's the issue, many scholars think, and I, I agree with them. Uh, and so um, the Catholics, I think, though they, I don't know that they put it in those terms, they kind of wind up there simply by pointing out the uh, the passages in the epistles that do pretty much say uh, you're uh, you're going to forfeit salvation if you continue to sin like in first uh, corinthians you know this that and the other thing whoever uh, commits these is not going to attain the kingdom of god doesn't that contradict Lutheranism? Yeah, it does. But uh, Paulinism isn't Lutheranism. Uh, so yeah, it, uh, it the the prominence in Protestantism, at least, is a result of of Luther's reading of Romans. I think. I don't think you really find that in Paul if you look at it in the original context. Okay, believe it or not, we're just up to Ben's question number two. Uh, as mentioned in my previous question, Hebrews 5.8 says of Jesus, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Uh, you know, the author of the Hebrews was uh, Jackie Mason, right? So, um, if I got the right Jackie, I think I do. Yeah. Uh, but when I think of various New Testament writings, including what I recall of the rest of Hebrews itself, I don't recall anything about Jesus having learned obedience through his suffering. Rather, Jesus seems to have been obedient from the get-go, and he suffers as a result. Yes, in the synoptic passion, he first asks his father to remove the cup, but he makes clear right away that he will willingly accept whatever the father prescribes. What do you make of this line from Hebrews? What does it relate to? Does it make any kind of sense at all? Yeah, this was uh, one of the cornerstones of Arian theology, right? They, they said that Jesus was the highest created being, but that is what he was, kind of like an archangel. The Logos was created, and to uh, earn the, uh, the titles of Son of God, Christ, uh, even God, uh, he had to undergo this mortal life alien to his true heavenly nature. He had to, uh, it's, it's like, uh, it's basically the same point as in the kenosis hymn in uh, Philippians 2, that he took, though he was in the form of God, etc., he, he uh, assumed the human form uh, and uh, became a, a servant and uh, he goes through all the vicissitudes of life that, that a poor mortal must do. And I think that's really the point here, that he suffered the thousand slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Uh, 
and didn't say, okay, I've had enough of this. Uh, see you, fellas. I'm going back to heaven where I belong. No, he was willing to stick it out uh, the whole time. And um, and and that uh, crisis point in Gethsemane, um, that's that could be taken as the cameo of the whole thing. Uh, that I'm willing to do it, uh, don't like the idea, not a glutton for punishment, but if this is the will of God, all right, that's that's what I'll do. So I don't really see any kind of contradiction there. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I, I uh, do not rejoice in finding contradictions in the Bible. I mean, atheists often like to point those out as if they are proof-texting the Bible in a fundamentalist manner. Aha! See? Uh, the, the Bible contradicts itself here, so uh, that means it's not authoritative. Hallelujah! Now, I, I don't uh, take uh, pleasure in that. I just try to read it for what it says, and, and if there is a proposed difficulty that isn't really one, I'm happy to point that out. Question number three. In a recent episode, you compared Galatians 1, 11 through 12, where Paul says that he learned his gospel through revelation with 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, where Paul tells the Corinthians that he delivered to them what he also received. And my understanding is that most scholars uh, read this received in 1 Corinthians as meaning passed to him by other human authorities, for example, the pillars in Jerusalem, via teaching or oral tradition. Thus, there seems to be a contradiction between Galatians and 1 Corinthians on the source of Paul's gospel, with one claiming revelation and the other asserting teaching and or oral tradition. In the Bible Geek episode in question, you seem to accept the view that these two passages do in fact contradict each other. I believe you referred to this contradiction as one piece of evidence arguing for a lack of a single Paul, even across the so-called undisputed Pauline letters. In contrast, my recollection is that Earl Doherty and Richard Carrier read the 1 Corinthians passage in light of, and as consistent with, the line from Galatians, such as... Uh, such that in 1 Corinthians, when Paul speaks of receiving a teaching, Doherty and Carrier argue that this reception was through revelation. Leaving aside the broad question about the integrity or lack of it of the Pauline corpus, I'd like to assume for the sake of discussion that both Galatians and 1 Corinthians came from an actual Paul. With that assumption in place, I wonder whether you would view the two cited passages as contradictory, or rather, would you understand them in the same way that Doherty and Carrier would? My impression is that you would not. Can you explain your thinking, and if you view things differently from Doherty and carrier, can you explain what accounts for this divergence? <laughs> That's because I'm right and they're wrong. I'm just kidding. Um, th the thing is, I think that uh, in the case of chapter 11, where he's talking about the, the uh, words of institution and all of that stuff, now this may be an interpolation. It's not my theory, but that of another. I can't think of his name now. Uh, but if, if uh, Paul did write it, I think that... Uh, it is likely that he means it is a tradition handed on to him. <sighs> Excuse me, there goes another one of those demons. Boy, too. That was the demon of Bultmann. Um, let's see. Uh, I once did some skit or something where they're having an exorcism at a seminary and uh, a <laughs> demon of higher criticism, I cast you out! Uh, uh, anyway. 
and just uh, blew my nose and a demon escaped. I think that one was Conselman. Anyway, uh, but uh, I have to admit, I uh, am uh, in, more inclined to go with the revelation notion there because of Haim Maccabee's argument. Uh, he says that, uh, that this might well account for the fact that this is about the only piece of anything like gospel narrative in the Pauline epistles. Where did he get it? I mean, if he knew anything about the Jesus comparable to the gospel materials, why didn't he tell us a bunch of it? Well, if this was a revelation to him, that would explain it. Uh, and that makes some sense to me, because simply the idea of having received it and passed it on, well, the rabbis used such terminology to speak of Moses receiving the Torah on Mount Sinai from God. He didn't get it from uh, uh, from Nadab and Abihu, he didn't get it from Jethro, right? Uh, much less Jed or uh, uh, whatever. Uh, but uh, he he received it and then passed it on. Well, okay, that sounds good. I I'm not decided, but I I think both are are natural readings of it. The big problem I have is later in First Corinthians in chapter fifteen, where it says first uh, I delivered to you uh, first of all or as of first importance what I received, namely that uh, Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, uh, was buried, rose from the dead according to the scriptures, etc. And then he appeared to uh, Cephas and uh, the, the twelve, James and all the apostles, uh, 500 brethren, uh, so on and so on, and a partridge and a pear tree, uh, that uh, he's saying, whether it was they or I, this is what we preached. That implies that he was educated by his uh, forebears in the faith. That's uh, the book of Acts talking, right? Uh, and uh, where he's instructed at least by Ananias of Damascus, right? And uh, that, I think, is uh, tough to square with the Revelation theory. Uh, whereas the whole point uh, in Galatians is... Look, I'm not somebody's lackey. I'm not somebody's student. Uh, I got this right from the Messiah's mouth. Uh, so I think there is a real problem here. Uh, and some people try to... I went back and forth with, uh, with Gary Habermas and Mike Lycona on an interview once. Both great guys, by the way. Not enemies, just, you know... Uh, the other sports team, uh, where I said, uh, this is a contradiction. They said, oh, no, no, it's not in Galatian. Paul just means his basic gospel message. And I said, well, look at 1 Corinthians 15. That is the basic gospel message. Uh, and we went round and round on that. Uh, so I, I do think that is a problem. Um, it's the context in 1 Corinthians 15, not simply the fact uh, that he, he said he received it. Now, they could be right, but this seems to me the most natural reading of it, and that's all you can really say. I don't know how one could prove it. They could be right, though. Question four. In one of your books, uh, in either Deconstructing Jesus or Barn Ehrman Interpreted, I forget which, yeah, they're all pretty forgettable. I think you said you were persuaded by John Dominic Crossan's 
argument about the cross gospel. Yet in the recent episodes of The Bible Geek that I've listened to so far, you made no mention of the cross gospel at points when doing so would have logically fit. What is your current thinking on the proposed cross gospel? What do most mainstream biblical scholars make of Crossan's proposal? Is there a reason you didn't mention it in the context where it might have been relevant? Uh, ben, you'd have to give me examples. I don't remember uh, where that would have made a difference. I, I'm sure you're right. I just don't happen to recall. Uh, I do think that he's made a very good case uh, for it. And the, the basic idea of the, the cross gospel, or as I like to call it, the cross and gospel, <laughs> Uh, is that it was a collection of testimonia, as scholars have long called it, a collection of uh, Old Testament passages understood by Christians as predictions of, of the Passion, especially. And uh, Barnabas' uh, epistle seems to make use of that, and certain Old Testament passages quoted various times in the Gospels, it seems to imply there was a tradition of these these uh, isolated, out-of-context Old Testament passages that they used. And uh, he says that's what the cross gospel appeared to be. It was less of a narrative, it was sort of a sketchy narrative, which basically just kind of barely narratized these proof texts. And uh, he, Crossan, I mean, I have, I find fault with a whole lot of his work, or should I say, I, I can't see the uh, the truth of a lot of his work, but uh, he has done some, I think, is just great, like uh, in fragments, the aphorisms of Jesus, that is really a masterpiece um, of form criticism, but especially this book, he, he just is, does a phenomenal job of showing how various things, go, going all the way back to the scapegoat ritual in Leviticus, what is it, 16, and on through rabbinic and, uh, and uh, early Christian texts, are the root of a lot of features in the passion narrative that uh, you don't really have to look farther than Midrash. I, I go into this somewhat in uh, uh, the Christ myth theory and its problems, and it is amazing what he's done there. And uh, in his book, uh, who killed Jesus? He he goes over some of that, showing how an awful lot of the passion narrative does not seem to stem from anybody's memory, but has been cobbled together from Old Testament references. He doesn't seem to get the implication of this, uh, but... Uh, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Was anybody there, including Jesus, when they crucified my Lord? Uh, but yeah, it, it is amazing. And uh, his argument gets very complex on the other end of it, looking at the Gospel of Peter and comparing it with the cross gospel, that underlying compilation of testimonia, uh, and uh, the uh, four canonical gospels. And he ha I know it's, it's like microsurgery, but I found it pretty compelling that he shows that the Gospel of Peter isn't the cross gospel. Uh, it must have been, the cross gospel has been supplemented in the second century by people that were uh, taking bits and pieces from the canonical gospels to pad it out even further. And he has criteria for it that make a lot of sense to me. 
Uh, at the Jesus Seminar once, he made an interesting comment saying that uh, Raymond Brown descended from his cross-gospel view, uh, didn't buy it, and he says, yet Brown somewhere says that, yes, it all goes down to a single gospel, though he says it's Mark. So he says, really, he's kind of in the same ballpark. I'd like to know more about that, but I do remember him saying it. Okay, uh, yeah, that is one fascinating book. Uh, let's see. Um... Uh, let's see. Yeah, okay, uh, question five. In one of your books, Case Against the Case for Christ, if I recall, you noted regarding Q and the synoptic problem that even if one posits an approach other than the usual two-source theory, for instance, Matthean priority or the Farrar theory, it wouldn't make much difference. By the way, I was watching... Uh, True Detective last night, and uh, they mention a character named... Uh, Austin Farrar, and I thought, what the heck? Uh, how, do they know that <laughs> there was this important New Testament scholar, uh, Austin Farrar? I, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of influence from Thomas Ligotti and Carl Edward Wagner in that show, with the Bible too, hallelujah. Anyway, uh, uh, what is the matter with me? Maybe it's senile dementia. Um, let's see. It wouldn't make much difference regarding Q. But your comment was made only in passing, and thus you didn't explain yourself fully. Is your point that however the double material entered the Gospels, it must have come from a written source, which would essentially be Q, even if not called by that name? Uh, let's see. I think maybe... I know I have said this, and maybe you're you're referring to uh, when I said if you prefer the theory that... Uh, Matthew used Mark and Luke used both Matthew and Mark, or the theory that Luke used Mark and Matthew used both Mark and Luke, uh, it still wouldn't help. It wouldn't get you out of the boat with uh, the notion of a an otherwise lost saying source, because you'd still have to ask, well, uh, where did uh, Matthew get the material he didn't get from Luke or Mark? Or where did Luke get the added material he didn't get from uh, Matthew or Mark? Uh, you're still, uh, you still you still are leaving something out in the cold. Uh, and um, I, maybe that was it. I, I'm not sure. I mean, if the attraction is, uh, well, now we can get rid of that hypothetical source that we don't have. No, I'm afraid not. Uh, you're dealing with uh, still unknown sources we don't have. Ooh, let's see, question six. This is more theological in nature, less about the New Testament per se. It pertains to the Eucharist. I'll lay out my question by referring to a particular document that was produced by the World Council of Churches, titled Baptism, Eucharist, and Ministry, 1982. Uh, ben, am I? I wonder if I am right in saying you are the only Bible geek listener who has ever read that. I'm pretty sure I have not. Anyway, I refer to this document here only because it provides a convenient way of framing my question, and because it may res 
represent more or less what a pretty broad ecumenical swath of churches are teaching, but my question itself is really not about the document. In the section that covers the Eucharist, in the subsection titled The Eucharist as Invocation of the Spirit, paragraph 14 includes this important sentence. The Church prays to the Father for the gift of the Holy Spirit in order that the Eucharistic event may be a reality, the real presence of the crucified and risen Christ giving his life for all humanity. My question has uh, two parts. First, insofar as the Eucharist, assuming a real presence doctrine, is essentially identical with the one and only crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, does not the quoted statement imply that the Church and thus all individual believers are actually asking of the Father that Jesus be killed? Uh, second, and related, does not this mean that the Church is actually, in its own eyes anyway, in some mystical sense, bringing about the crucifixion, in that the Church's prayers seem necessary, quote, in order that, unquote, to activate the Holy Spirit? Perhaps the answer to this que second question comes down to how can the Holy Spirit make the Eucharist event real without at the same time mystically initiating the original one-time event? To state my question bluntly, when Christians pray for the real presence during the Eucharist, are they also necessarily, whether they realize it or not, by definition, also praying for the death of Jesus? What do you think? Uh, actually, I, I don't think that is the implication, Ben, because what they're doing is to refer to what uh, Marcia Eliada calls the, well, others like Nietzsche have talked about it too, the eternal return, but uh, Eliada calls it, the sac uh, calls it sacred time, that in all religious thinking there are certain basic categories that are taken for granted at the point where we're surprised when we hear them elucidated. One of them is sacred space, that some places are more holy than others because they mark places where a hierophany has occurred, a manifestation of the sacred. You want to, you, you from there on in, think of that place as the navel of the earth. This is the central point from which it all uh, spreads out. And, uh, and so you build a temple there, which is itself supposed to be a kind of model of the whole universe, and uh, so on and so on. Sacred time is cyclical. It returns again and again. Uh, and uh, though profane, ordinary time is linear, from the past to the future in a straight line. The, uh, the sacred time above it, which is what theologians used to call Heilsgeschichte, salvation history, uh, this is cyclical, kind of a spiraling, slinky sort of a thing where it, uh, it touches, it intersects with the straight line of profane history every once in a while uh, on a tangent, right? And uh, then it goes up again and then down again later and touches the, the arrow of, of uh, profane time. That, that's why you have uh, repeated religious rituals. In though that time is especially sacred because the time of creation and revelation uh, 
returns briefly to supercharge the profane world with sacredness, with ontological power. It sustains and supports the very existence of profane time, which otherwise would be almost an illusion. And uh, so the, uh, the kingship renewal of the ancient Near Eastern monarchies, the divine mandate of the king, God's uh, vicar on earth, is renewed every uh, New Year ritual. And uh, all, all cultures have some version of this. And that's, or uh, at the Passover Seder, when they say, you and I are there right now in the room with Moses and the children of Israel during the original Passover. We're not just commemorating it. Somehow we are there during the Seder. Well, same thing with the Roman Catholic Mass. Jesus died once and for all. They know the letter to the Hebrews says that. But we are recalling, re-invoking that time uh, among us, making it present again. Jesus isn't going to die anymore. That happened once not again. But what is happening is that the sacred time of redemption is returning. So it's the same sacrifice uh, that is once and for all, but this is how it's for all. Uh, it avails continuously because it comes back again and again. We're not re-crucifying Jesus. It's almost as if it's time travel and we're going back there. Uh, is there room at the cross for you? Well, yeah, and that's why. Yeah, okay. So, uh, yeah, okay, I guess that's, uh, that's it, Ben. Thanks for the questions. Uh, pretty, uh, pretty good ones, I'd say. Mm, let's see. Do I want to? Yeah. Mm, okay, this is from Derek Jensen who says he speaks with a thick Midwestern accent. Okay. Uh, let's see. Um, I've only recently come across the comparisons of Judaism and Christianity with Zoroastrianism. I'm having trouble making solid connections, eh? Uh, you've uh, mentioned some tantalizing links at times, but I wonder if you could address it specifically. First, is the vague impression I've seen that Judaism is a breakaway Canaanite religion influenced by the Persians during their occupation of Palestine or their exile to Persia? I'm not clear on the history. Uh, yeah, they uh, they were the the ruling and priestly castes were taken off to Babylon and the Babylonian Empire was then taken over by the Persians and that's when Jews would have met Zoroastrianism and then an elite of uh, the priestly families came back under the direction of Persian Jewish agents, Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, who commissioned the rebuilding of the temple and pretty much imposed a, I think, Zoroastrianized version of Judaism. Okay, um, 
I've seen it noted uh, that the Temple of the Jews was reconstructed by King Cyrus of Persia, and Ezra himself was a Zoroastrian Jew, or at least a Jew out of Babylon, uh, under Cyrus, who wrote not only the Book of Ezra, but also rewrote the books of the Jewish laws and reintroduced the Persianized Torah to Jerusalem. However, I found that Cyrus is described as a worshiper of Marduk, which I believe is an older Babylonian religion, different from Zoroastrianism. What's your take on this? Well, it was the policy of the Persian Empire, as it was generally with Rome and, and others, to uh, not to try to stamp out religion, uh, of, of the religion of their subject peoples, but to uh, sponsor it, but also to, uh, re, re, uh, to, to influence it to make the people loyal to the imperial power. And uh, so uh, that's uh, that didn't require Cyrus to be a Jew any more than Constantine had to quit being the Pontifex Maximus of the cult of the imperial son. Uh, and uh, so they that's not inconsistent at all. Uh, it's just that from the standpoint of Persianized Jews like Ezra and so on, uh, well, the second Isaiah... Um, uh, is uh, calls has God called Cyrus my anointed my Messiah? Yeah, that's what it seemed like. Here's the guy that's bringing back some kind of Jewish sovereignty and supporting the Jewish religion, though uh, not all Jews, especially back home, uh, welcomed it or understood what what on earth it was. Uh, about Ezra rewriting the books of the Jewish law, that is really fascinating. Uh, we're told that he came back uh, from Persia with the law of God in his hand. Now, what is that? Well, um, some scholars have said that's the finished Pentateuch. I think Wellhausen thought that. And uh, that uh, it had been put together by Jewish scribes in Babylon, then Persia. And uh, But uh, did he simply redact and combine J, E, D, and P? Might have, but there is this incredibly intriguing passage in 4th Ezra, a book venerated by the Eastern churches, though not necessarily considered uh, canonical, but almost what, what's the difference, really, uh, where um, it says that during the exile the whole of the Jewish scripture was destroyed, burnt up, uh, eradicated, and that uh, God, in a vision, gave Ezra a, a flaming red drink. Oh, this already sounds like Zoroastrianism. Uh, after uh, Zoroaster was baptized, the angel Vohumana gave him a prophetic cup, and he drank it and, and got knowledge of, of God. Well, same thing, Ezra quaffs it, and uh, now is really uh, flooded with the knowledge he needs to restore the whole Hebrew canon, and, and some 70 more esoteric books kept aside from, uh, from the common rabble. This would be, uh, the writer was no doubt thinking of all the books that were in the Qumran library, uh, Jubilees, uh, the books of Enoch, the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, and who knows what else. Now, that is an amazing, uh, <laughs> uh, when you read stuff like that, you, you start thinking, 
doesn't this really mean that there weren't any Hebrew scriptures before the uh, the return from the exile? That it's all that late? Well, it may have been. Uh, that's uh, I give some arguments for that in uh, Holy Fable, Volume 1. Uh, let's see... Um, uh, second is the suggestion that Christianity is a Ju- Judaized version of Zoroastrianism that took the Jewish archangel Yeshua from Isaiah and promoted him to the Messiah in place of Ahura Mazda and introduced the uh, wait, uh, uh, scroll more than I thought introduced the concepts of heaven hell. His death caused by Satan, his resurrection, and ultimate judgment. However, I can't seem to find anything about an archangel named Yeshua. And it seems like uh, Luke's story about the rich man, Sheol, being surrounded by fire and trying to get a sip of water from Lazarus in the good place suggests that Jews already had a confusing concept of a good and bad underworld that they've since abandoned. Um, If so then what exactly was Jesus offering when he offered eternal life in heaven as opposed to the bosom of Abraham versus what seems to be eternal life of misery in Sheol? And if Zoroastrianism had influenced Jewish-slash-early-Christian thinking, who was doing it? Paul didn't come from a Zoroastrian background, right? Yet you say often that his teaching is all about a spirit Jesus instead of a real-life Jesus, which is more... Uh, in keeping with Zoroastrian beliefs. Please guide me, O geek. Well, some of this is not quite um, accurate, um, but the general idea is that we don't have evidence in the Bible, in pre-exilic writings, of the notion of uh, of an arch enemy of God, Satan, rather the Satan, a title, the adversary, was a servant of God who whose job was to do sting operations to see if the supposedly pious really were all they're cracked up to be, or if they're just doing it for the fringe benefits uh, and. Uh, showers of blessings like Job, and uh, the the Satan didn't want to see God mocked, and so he puts him to the test. There are about three instances of that in the Old Testament, and some in the New. But uh, you uh, suddenly get in the New Testament this idea that Satan is the enemy of God. In fact, in Second Enoch, a later, not not much later work, he's called Sathanael, the adversary of God. Now, where'd they get that? Apparently, from Zoroastrianism, where you had the good God Ahura Mazda, the wise Lord, uh, and uh, against him Ahriman, uh, the Lord of Darkness, and so on. And uh, so uh, that it looks like what they did was to combine the Satan with uh, Ahriman and also with Leviathan from way back there. Uh, there, there isn't a a prediction of a literal resurrection of the dead in the Old Testament, except very late stuff. There's a figurative resurrection scene in Ezekiel in the very late post Alexander. 
Isaiah apocalypse around chapter 26 and so on, there is a, a, a reference to a resurrection of, of, of the people of Israel. And in Daniel, it says many of the righteous will rise. But these are both very late works, and they're certainly uh, post-exilic. Uh, so where'd they get the idea of uh, the resurrection of the dead? Well, Zoroastrians had it. Where'd they get the idea of a cosmic messiah? Uh, well, uh, they uh, there was a, a, a divine messiah, son of God, etc., in the ancient sacred king mythology attached to the New Year renewal of the, the mandate of heaven, uh, a myth uh, that they shared with the adjacent monarchies, uh, but um, as Judaism was getting more monotheistic, they kind of gutted the concept and reduced the uh, job description of the coming Messiah to be just a descendant of King David who would restore Israel's independence. Well, the, it looks like maybe this cosmic son of man was based on the Seoshiant, uh, the uh, the benefactor who was who would be a virgin-born descendant of the prophet Zoroaster. He would raise the dead for the last judgment. Uh, the idea of dividing history into foreordained periods in which certain things were scheduled. We don't see that in the uh, in the Old Testament. Rather, we see the Deuteronomic theory of history, that if, if Jews are good and keep the covenant, good things will happen. If they commit apostasy, they're in for it, and it just seems to go on and on. Uh, there are doomsdays planned for the enemies of, of Israel, but uh, I don't think you have more than imagery of uh, stars falling from the heavens, but you do in the New Testament and in apocalyptic Judaism. And the, the point of all of this is that uh, apocalyptic and Pharisaic Judaism seem to have gotten all of their stock and trade from Zoroastrianism. And uh, it's easy to see why. It wasn't just that Jewish thinkers during the exile heard this and said, hey, sounds pretty good, let's uh, remodel our religion. No, it looks more like that uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, Jews but agents of the Persian Empire, imposed a Judaized Zoroastrianism on uh, the Jewish community in Palestine once they got there and started uh, reorganizing things. Uh, so that's... but But the... Angel Yeshua, uh, that's a whole different thing. There, there was a tradition in mystical visionary Judaism and sometimes apocalyptic Judaism of a, uh, a great angel, the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, of whom God says, my name is in him. And so you have Yahoel uh, and, and various other versions of it mean uh, Yahweh is God, but the uh, eventually they came to think of this great archangel as Metatron, the one who sits on his own throne by the side of God, Metathronos. Uh, and uh, he was often identified with great patriarchs of, of Genesis, uh, who an exodus who were uh, believed to have ascended into heaven and become transfigured into fiery angels, Adam, Moses, Enoch, etc. Uh, and uh, this seems to have been very important for early Christianity as well. 
so that uh, that wasn't strictly speaking from Zoroastrianism, but it certainly was compatible with it. The Zoroastrian influence on Judaism was so great that uh, I follow uh, uh, T.W. Manson in his theory that Pharisee really is just a variant of Parsi, Persian, referring to Zoroastrians, and that Sadducees, who were traditional, more Old Testament Jews, they called the, the, the Jews who accepted this Persianized religion Parsis. Eh, you're not really Jews, you're Zoroastrians, you Parsis. I think that's correct, and it all fits together pretty darn well. The idea of a fiery hell... Um, that ultimately comes from Greek religion with uh, Tartaros as the bad part of the afterworld, a world of uh, torment for the wicked, though we're told only of, uh, as far as I know, three individuals who were said to wind up there because they have done especially bad things that offended the gods, Ixion, Ganymede, and Sisyphus. Uh, whether everybody that's wicked goes there or not, I, I'm not sure. But the idea of a fiery hell probably comes from the geography of Sicily. From there, a whole bunch of Neo-Pythagorean missionaries fanned out across the Mediterranean and the Middle East, teaching their doctrines, which included the notion of a fiery hell of torment, because Sicily, as you know, has a lot of volcanoes and stuff like that. Seems like that's where they got it. Uh, in the Old Testament, they already believed in a fiery netherworld, but it wasn't a place of punishment. It was the underground kingdom of Molech, a fire god to whom sacrifices were offered, infant sacrifices that would toss the baby into the flames of uh, ovens, altars there. But it wasn't like the little kids' souls were damned. I mean, I don't think they even believed in immortal souls at that point. But that conveniently morphed into the uh, the Sicilian Neopythagorean fiery hell. Uh, and, uh, oh yeah, another thing that uh, they probably got from Zoroastrianism was the idea of a guardian angel who looked like you and was your spirit double. Um, when Peter is released from jail by an angel and shows up at the door of the people praying for him in one of the funniest New Testament episodes um, there is, uh, they, the maid sees him at the door, and, and she's so astonished, she doesn't even open up and goes back to the prayer meeting and says, you're not going to believe this, Peter's at the door. And the, the, the head of the thing says, it, it must be his angel. What? Well, in other words, they thought Peter must be dead, and it's his ghost coming. Uh, that is so hilarious to me. Here are these righteous Christians praying earnestly for Peter's release, and it doesn't even occur to them that their prayer might be answered. Oh, you saw Peter? That confirms that he's dead. Uh, that that can't be bad writing. I think that is great writing. It's uh, a kind of uh, parody of people's uh, supposed faith. Well, that's about it, and that's about it for my voice, too, so we'll do more next time on uh, The Bible Geek, and I'll see you then. Thanks for being with me.